the El Fanboy Podcast. Hi everybody, Mario Francisco Robles MFR here with you, and this is the official revisitation of Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice, uh, with a special sort of twist, of course, because I didn't just see the theatrical cut, I saw the Ultimate Edition for the first time ever. Now yesterday, I put up a video where I revisited Man of Steel for the first time in four and a half years. And if you have not yet seen that, I encourage you to go check it out, because some of what I have to say about this, you know, logically sort of builds on that, since this is the sequel to that. Um, So when it comes to Batman v Superman, I only saw that one once, unlike Man of Steel, which I saw three times. I saw it once a year and a half ago in theaters on the at the Thursday night preview as a professional assignment for a Latino review. Uh, at the time, I was actually planning on skipping the movie, but Kelvin Chavez, my old friend, asked me to see it, and he paid me to do so, so I said, okay, what do I have to lose? Um, at the time, I kind of felt like I lost a lot. Uh, that film, uh, I gave a review of C+. Uh, there were certain aspects of it that I liked far more than I thought I would. Uh, for example, the third act... I love the third act. For me, the entire movie is about what happens from the Martha moment on. So let's just sort of mention that right up here at the front. You know, I'm not going to speak about the film sort of chronologically, but let's talk about it in those sort of terms. From Martha moment on, the original Batman v Superman really worked for me. I loved Doomsday then. I loved him even more this time around, even though they didn't really seem to add any more Doomsday bits. But I just, I love Doomsday. I've never understood the hate around that character, its design, any of that stuff. I, I, I think Doomsday is a pretty awesome villain in this movie, and I loved it. Uh, so yeah, but I gave it a C plus because, unfortunately... What I liked about it was really all contained in the last, like, half hour. You know, from the Martha moment on, I didn't write it down, but from the Martha moment on, I believe it's only about the last 30, 40 minutes of the movie, if even that much. So, unfortunately for me, that meant that for the first two hours of that two-and-a-half-hour movie, I was not having a good time. Uh, so, it, in, in certain ways, for me, the film was saved by that third act. This one, for the Ultimate Edition, uh, I would like to just say right off the top, you know, a lot of people were telling me that, you know, yes, uh, the theatrical cut was not great, but the Ultimate Edition is actually much better. Even people who initially fought with me about even the theatrical cut, people who thought that my C-plus was too harsh, eventually seeded the fact that actually the theatrical cut was pretty lousy. Uh, They eventually sort of came around on that, but then they would shift over and say, but the ultimate edition is where it's at. See that and then tell me how you feel. So what's the verdict on that on that front? You guys were right. Holy crap, you were right. The ultimate edition I found to be uh, far more entertaining. Uh, I thought it was far better constructed. I liked the editing. I liked the flow of the story more. And in general, I have to agree, the Ultimate Edition 
is a is a is a definite improvement over the theatrical cut. Um, but also now I I kind of but now before we get really in depth here, uh, we were still just sort of nipping at the at the corners of all this. Before we get into the meat and potatoes of this baby, I, I I feel the need to disclaim something or to explain something about how I viewed this this time around. Um, I, I viewed Batman v Superman: Dawn of Justice on this second go around more as an outsider, more as a just sort of general spectator. Um, and I think that's a very important sort of line of demarcation because I sort of realized this time around, I went into it from the vantage point of this movie's not really for me. For better or worse, Zack Snyder wasn't thinking of me or fans like me. This He's targeting a totally different type of audience here. And in general, this movie just isn't for me. You know, I was much harder on Man of Steel because in that one with these with the story and the script... And the whole concept that came from the Nolan brothers, you know, Jonathan and Christopher, who then David Goyer took and, and you know, and he had his own pitch, of course, which sort of was the germ, the, the root of all this. You know, the, the three of them created something very special that did speak to me. So for me, Man of Steel was a film that had all this potential that in many ways was targeting myself and people like me, but it was sort of at war with itself because you had the... What, no, what the Nolan brothers and Goyer wanted on one side, but you had what Zack Snyder wanted on the other. So Man of Steel, for me, was really a, a film that was at war with itself and trying to reconcile itself and figure out what exactly it wanted to be. So I was actually harder on that one because I could see, I could see all the glimmers of, of, of interesting ideas and things that really spoke to me, spoke to my mind, spoke to my heart, grabbed me by the throat had all the things that, I, that I've always wanted to see in a Superman movie but only could dream of. Man of Steel had a bunch of that, but ultimately Snyder sort of took what worked about the film and went a different way with it. So that's why Man of Steel for me, I was, I was you know, I'll always be harder on. Batman v Superman makes it very clear from the beginning that they don't give a damn about me this time around. You know, there's no Nolans. You could tell the Goyer stuff is very sort of minimalistic. Whatever impact he had on the final story is very minimalistic. You know, from the outset, the entire design, conceptualization, everything they're going for in this movie, they make it abundantly clear they don't give a crap about me. And in a way... That, that, that kind of took a load off my shoulders. I was able to just sort of sit back and go, okay, well, you know, this isn't for me, but let me sort of watch it for what it is. Because I think that's important. I think that's very important when you're critiquing a film. You know, if, if you're someone, for example, who doesn't like romantic comedies, but you go to see one for whatever reason, your date wants to take, you know, is dragging you to it, or somehow you just ended up in front of a rom-com, and you don't really care for it, there's a part of you that kind of knows, like, well, this isn't for me, so I shouldn't judge this based on what it does for me. I should just try to judge it somewhat, just sort of subjectively for what it is. For what it's trying to be, does it succeed? And that's sort of how I kind of had to go at Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice this time around. 
And what do I mean by it not being for me? Well, you know, let's break it down a little bit. I've never been someone who gives a damn about the idea of Batman and Superman fighting. Like, sure, I remember being 12 years old and being in middle school and having those little, like, hey, who do you think would win, Batman or Superman? Oh, well, I don't know. Does he have kryptonite arrows? Yeah, he has kryptonite arrows. But then that doesn't count because then he's not really beating him. Yeah, you're right. I, I remember those debates. I remember all that sort of schoolyard sort of stuff. But for me, like, that's where that stuff stayed. That was just a fun little, like, oh, what if, you know, and if a if, if some sort of Elseworld tale comic book came out where they fought for a little while, I, you know, I, I would enjoy it as a standalone, just sort of what if scenario type of story. But I've never been someone who actually wanted to see these two characters at each other's throats. That does nothing for me. Um, I've also never been someone who ha- ha- like has a burning desire to see Superman punch something. Now, I know that sounds kind of funny, but specifically that note came out a lot in the wake of uh, Superman Returns back in 2006. I remember reading it all over forums, in certain reviews, even just in conversations I'd have with people who hated the film. And trust me, look, I know that there's lots of critiques about the film that I totally think are absolutely valid and just. But one that I would see a recurring sort of theme amongst a certain breed of fan was, I want to see Superman punch something. And I've never felt any sort of inclination to feel that way myself. I've never heard that and went, yeah, that would be cool. Like, it's just, it's just, it's just not... Whether how, how strong he is, he is, and, and his ability to punch things has never been part of what appeals to me about Superman. That's just never been you know it. You know, with other with other characters like with the Incredible Hulk, I want to see him. I want to see Hulk smash. To me, that sort of brute blunt force is part of why what I like about the Hulk. When Logan, you know, when Wolverine loses it and goes into a berserker rage, like, yeah, I want to see him tear people apart and go absolutely nuts, and I, I get that adrenaline rush, and it's like, oh, I love it. Superman has never been a character that I want to see get his hands dirty like that. So I think it's kind of cool if he's up against a superpowered villain and, and you know, and if it's animated right and if, you know, if the, if the stakes are clear. Of course, that's a neat idea. But in general, both Man of Steel and Batman v Superman are heavily in that, you know, they're catered towards that I want to see a demigod beat the hell out of something aspect of the Superman fandom. And that's just never been me. That's never been me. So right off the bat, you know, with Man of Steel and especially with Batman v Superman, they're speaking to a different subset of the fandom than I am. Um... Same thing with the idea of the angry god. Everyone loves the angry god. You know, you and, and I agree. It, it's it, it's a neat visual. You know, you show me a Jim Lee drawing of a silhouetted Superman, where all you see are the glowing red eyes and the cape billowing in the background, and he's hovering there. And I'll tell, I'll agree with you. That is an epic looking shot. I would like that framed, and I'll put it on my wall to observe it as a piece of standalone art. This interesting concept of what happens when you piss off Superman. But the actual concept of the angry god and seeing it play out in a story doesn't speak to me. Um, And if you're going to go there, it has to be against a threat that really warrants it. 
if I'm going to see, if I'm going to sit through this angry God stuff, it has to be against someone who I can't wait to see Superman tear him apart. And Batman v Superman, I don't want to see Superman tear Batman apart. So all of that anger and all of that rage and all of that sort of stuff that's brewing under the surface and and the threat, you know, the bat is dead, bury it. Like to me, that just feels off. It it's it's not. It doesn't appeal to me. It doesn't work for me. It doesn't get my imagination going. It doesn't excite me. That's not what's bringing me to the theater. Which brings me to the final way in which this film is just not for me, is for a lot of people, they came to the movie to see the title fight, right? The title is Batman v Superman. A lot of the trailers spend a lot of time on the rooftop with the two of them confronting each other, and the posters show them going nose to nose. Like, this was clearly trying to appeal to those people who were, or, I'm here for the fight. You know, all this buildup, whatever, I don't care. I know Doomsday's in it. I'm here to see Batman versus Superman. And I I didn't go see the... First of all, I didn't want to see the movie to begin with, but had I gone to see the movie beyond it being a professional assignment, I wouldn't have been going for that fight. For me, the fight would have just been a distraction. And it still ultimately is. And I'll get to that when we actually start the review of this thing. I've still just been spending all this time sort of laying out the case for how I entered the movie this time. So yeah, so what's interesting is accepting very early on that this movie is just not for me. It's for a completely different type of Superman fan and a completely different type of cinema goer was very, very important. And earlier I mentioned this idea of like, it's one thing if this is a standalone incident in an Elseworld comic book, and it's another if this is supposed to be the ultimate definitive canon for these characters and, 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 and a permanent imprint on their mythology. And here's where, here's where I think a lot of the negativity came from in the last year and a half. For a lot of writers and a lot of bloggers and a lot of fans and a lot of people who rejected this movie... The people who are why it stalled out at $873 million and didn't cross that billion-dollar mark and the reason that the film dropped like a turd in the second weekend, almost 70%, and in general had just no legs. For a lot of those kinds of people, the anger and the negativity came from the very idea that, what? These are the definitive takes now on Batman and Superman? Because right now we're living in the golden age of superhero cinema. We keep getting basically, you know, these either introductions or reintroductions of characters we've already met with the understanding that now that we're in the golden age, now that Marvel Studios is very hands-on with its characters, now that DC Entertainment is very hands-on with its characters, and we're creating these shared universes and everything is really trying to embrace the books, there's a sort of subconscious message being sent to the audience at large that now, after years of false attempts and, and, and mistakes and these, you know, now you're finally getting the ultimate versions of these heroes. You know, like Captain America is an example. There were one or two Captain America movies already in the 80s or maybe even like 1990, and they were terrible. And now that the Chris Evans one is out, we know this from now on, this is the standard bearer. This is the real Captain America. That other stuff was just a failed attempt. 
This year with Spider-Man Homecoming. Now with Spider-Man Homecoming, it's the understanding of now that we are getting to see Peter Parker inside a proper Marvel world where he gets to interact with Tony Stark and and, uh, Steve Rogers. And and it's all, you know, this is finally the Spider-Man. With all these characters, even like on, on, the, on TV with Daredevil, you know, like, yes, with the, yes, we had the terrible movie that came out that everyone sort of forgot about or wishes they could forget about. But now, for all intents and purposes, the one played by Charlie Cox on Netflix, that is the Daredevil. John Bernthal is the Punisher. So we're living in an age where we're being told, finally, for all you fans of these characters who grew up on these fictional you know, characters, you're finally getting the ultimate version of them. These are the definitive takes, the ones that you and your kids will follow from now on. This is Superman, everyone. This is Batman. And I think that's one of the reasons people were pissed off. Because it's one thing if you want to tell this sort of dark side story about a time Batman and Superman hated each other and the way all that sort of played out. But to try to tell a mass audience, to try to tell millions of people around the world who want to see this movie and who've grown up on these characters and wearing their Superman shirts and going to bed in their Aquaman pajamas, to tell all these people that now this version is the take that you're going to have to live with for the foreseeable future, you're going to piss them off. Because you're going in a very sort of distinct, very sort of bold way with it. And it's not a way that's very popular. You're taking it and you're sort of warping the mythology to go down this very sort of dark path. So I think that's where a lot of the anger came from. A lot of people wonder, why is there so much hate? Why, why do the people who write about how much they hated uh, Batman v Superman, why do they seem to write about it with such joy? They seem to deliberately enjoy just sinking their teeth into this movie and making it sound terrible. Well, it's because you pissed them off. You told them from now on, this is the Batman and Superman you have to deal with. You took the, the characters they grew up on, who they, who, who they came to the theater to want to celebrate and cheer for, and you put them in a movie that's very sort of dark and depressing with characterizations of them that don't really stand up to the universal understanding of who these characters are. And instead of playing it off like this is just a side story, this is just an Elseworld tale, you're telling us that this is it. This is your DC landscape from now on. And that's why they were met with so much outrage and so much backlash. People couldn't believe that Zack Snyder did things like, hey, you know Jimmy Olsen, that lovable character you love? We're going to put a bullet in his face 95 seconds after you met him. Like That's how I felt watching the Ultimate Edition. Now, I know that maybe casual Joe Blow moviegoer didn't realize that was Jimmy Olsen, and we didn't get that confirmed until the Ultimate Edition came out, but like that's the kind of mindset Snyder took to things. He liked deconstructing. Him and Deborah Snyder spoke about that at the set reports, the set visits last year from Justice League. There's this gleeful deconstruction of what we love about these characters happening in Batman v Superman. And if you're going to deconstruct them before you've even properly built them up and you're basically introducing them to the world as the definitive cuts of these characters, but in and of themselves, there are these warped takes on them, that they're these deconstructed versions of them. You can't be surprised when people reject it and loudly reject it.
Um, this time around, though, I'm not going to loudly reject what was what I saw, because now rather than taking it personally, rather than watching this movie as someone who feels like, you know, I'm I have a lot personally invested, I'm just going to try to enjoy it for what it is, and that's how I sat down to watch it. So now it's time to get into the actual review of Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice Ultimate Edition. Similar to Man of Steel, this time around I did take notes. I actually, if Man of Steel, I think I had two pages here. I have one, two, three, four, five, five and a half pages of notes. Um, so I'm going to sort of jump around. I don't, you know, I'm not going to do like a whole chronological breakdown. Just want to speak to you about things in the order with which I find them prudent. So just, uh, just as I spoke about Man of Steel, how I loved how it opens in terms of taking the Superman mythology and treating it with importance and heft and gravitas. Uh, I thought Batman v Superman did the same thing for the Batman mythology, and I love that. The, the opening sort of sequence there where he's burying his parents and where we're reliving the loss of, of the Waynes and, and how Bruce was essentially born in blood, um, I love that. And the way it's shot, it, it's, it's given great importance that sequence where he falls into the cave and he sees the bats and the bats seemingly raise him up and you realize it's like a dream of sorts, but it's all very sort of metaphorical for, for him finding his own sort of escape amidst all this pain and, and, and embracing that darkness. And that's how he was able to pull himself out of the hole. You know, I, I love, love, love the way the Batman myth is treated in this movie. Um, I, I found it curious that in this version, the, there were title like the, the, there was a title opening in the beginning, but never again. Like in terms of like, there's this little title card that shows um, the Metropolis fight from the alternate from the street level perspective, and in the Ultimate Edition, there's this little title card that says like you know mankind is introduced to Superman. And I'm like, oh, is this going to be, are they going to put something like that at the start of all the big chapters of this story? But they only did it there in the beginning. So that was uh, a weird sort of inconsistent choice they made with this version of the movie. Like, why have it there in the beginning if you're never going to revisit the, uh, that idea again of, of prefacing, now here's what this chapter is about. Um, but that said, I do still love that alternate perspective. I think it was very well done seeing Bruce Wayne saving those people and running through the streets. It's all very powerful, very sort of dramatic stuff. And I appreciated it originally, and I still appreciate it now. What I didn't appreciate then, and I still don't, is, you know, I, I hate, hate, hate that they're treating the introduction of Superman to the world as an utter tragedy because there's that sequence there, there's that moment there where he's where he, he Bruce saves the little crying girl from the falling debris and he says we're gonna find your mother where is she and she points at the building that just toppled over as part of Superman's battle with Zod and then he looks up menacingly at Superman and it's like that scene kills me 
You know, I have a daughter who's about that age. And in that sequence, I put myself in her shoes. Imagine this scared little girl. Her mother is gone, seemingly. She all, you know, she doesn't know what's going on. The entire, her entire world, metaphorically and, and, and literally, are falling apart around her. And it's because of Superman. It's because of this fight. And it's, you know, the, 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 the whole idea that the framing of, of what happened at the end of Man of Steel, rather than it being the, the triumphant introduction of Superman to the world, it's actually this big scar for thousands of people. His arrival is a hurtful, scary, emotional disaster. And I, you know, that was just like that, that hurts. I don't know, like, why would you, I don't know what would possess someone to think that this is how people want to view Superman. Um, you know, there's a, there's so many ways that this story could have been told where you could have had your cake and, and ate it too. But here I just kind of felt like they overplay what a negative influence he's been since arriving and they completely underplay what he has meant to the world at large. Um, and that's kind of a general note. And then, you know, I wrote about Jimmy Olsen dying again. Oh, here's Jimmy Olsen. This is cool. 95 seconds later, bullet to the face. Very nice. Good job. And more of that, uh, the, that blunt force Superman I was talking about earlier, the Superman who punches people. You know, they, they show the Superman, you know, Superman arriving in that Africa sequence and giving that like badass glare at the terrorist and then spearing him through a wall and it's like that's never eh, that's, again that's not my superman that's not that's not what i come to see so the wall smash was just more of that continued idea of the blunt force superman which never ever spoke to me um In the continuing trend of introducing us to characters and then totally sort of warping them in terms of like what you know the mainstream opinion is of these characters, Batman is perhaps one of the most glaring examples of that in this movie. Uh, I didn't even notice it last time around, but we don't get to see Batman just in his full Batman regal glory until very deep into the movie, which that, that's not the problem. I, I, I don't mind a slow burn and, you know, we meet Bruce and we get glimpses of that. I don't mind that. But just to sort of break it down, here are the first three times we see Batman. The first time he's sort of slinking around like a demon up in the corner and he's like walking on the walls and he's like totally uh, unrealistically agile, but that's, uh, that's just nitpicking. But that like our first visual is him as almost like a horror movie figure slinking around in the corner and that whole thing. And he's shadows and, you know, that's not Batman in all his glory. That's not, you know, the, uh, the dark Knight, the detective at work. That's like, Oh, scary. Interesting. Okay. The next time we see him is the nightmare sequence. I hadn't realized that, that, before we ever get to see Batman in all of his full costume and being Batman, we see him in that what the WTF nightmare sequence where he's running around with the trench coat over him and he's having the whole, you know, that he's fighting all the guys and there's the guns and there's the whole thing, whatever. So we, we still haven't seen Batman in all his glory, right? Then we finally get that shot where he's over the shipyard because he's there to try to get the kryptonite from the white Portuguese, 
And here's where you finally get that shot where he's standing on like what looks like a wrecking ball or a crane or something. And the camera's sort of sweeping around him and the cape is flowing from behind. And you're like, oh, that's Batman. There it is. This is awesome. And then when it comes around, our first head on shot of him, he's holding a gun. Now, listen, I, I know that it's like it, he, it's not an actual gun. He uses it to shoot a tracker thing. But that's the initial visual. Before we ever find out that it's a tracking thing, our first real shot of Ben Affleck as Batman in just the full proper costume doing what Batman does, lurking from above and looking down at the criminal underworld beneath him, our first shot like that, he's looking through the scope of a sniper rifle. And it's like, yes, okay, of course. And you, know, you see that, you go, what? And then he shoots the thing and you go, oh, okay, all right. It wasn't really a gun. He was shooting the tracking module. Great. But again, Snyder's going for that initial jolt. He wants you to go, huh? Why is he holding a gun? So in so many different ways, there's that sort of element in this movie where Snyder's trying to twist your expectations of these characters. And I think that backfired in a major way. Because rather than people embracing these twists, they they came to the movie to celebrate them. They came to the movie because they want to see their favorite heroes be awesome, not because they want to see them get shot in the face and one who was you know never really holds a gun has a gun. You know, I don't want to harp too much on the gun business because I am a little more liberal about that stuff than other people. Like, I, I have Batman friends who instantly just hate everything about this Ben Affleck Batman just because he used a gun and because he ends up killing the guy who was about to kill Martha. I don't have any of those qualms. I'm not a purist when it comes to that. I'm kind of cool with him using guns. You know, I had no issue with it in, in uh, 1989, Batman, Tim Burton's one with the, the machine guns on the car and the whole thing. Like, I, I'm not a purist when it comes to that. But it's just evident that Snyder is like purposefully, gleefully trying to tweak everyone's perspectives on these characters throughout the movie. And, you know, that didn't work out now, did it? Um, I love the scenes with Bruce and Alfred. I still, I still do. I adored them the first time around. I adore them even more this time. I think Jeremy Irons is a phenomenal Alfred. And Ben Affleck, when he's locked in and engaged and loving what he's doing, is a phenomenal Bruce Wayne and Batman. So watching the two of them sort of sparring and, and the great lines of dialogue there where he's like, you know, um, what did he write? You're too old to die young, but not for lack of trying. Like, I love all that stuff. The writing there is very strong, and their chemistry is wonderful. Um, and by the way, since we're, you know, we're talking about score a lot lately on the, uh, on the podcast and elsewhere, um, I love that Lex Luthor has a theme, and I hope it, you know, it, I hope they use it again. I hope it's not one of these things where they use it for a couple of scenes in Batman v Superman, but then we'll never see it again. I love how it's sort of the antithesis of the Superman theme. It's sort of like a twisted in and out 180 version of Superman's. This one's like, like, you know, it's, I, I kind of love that he's the warped Superman. I think that's pretty awesome. Um, then, you know, in terms of the way the narrative flows, like it is much better this time around, but there are still are certain things that just seem somewhat 
uh, confusing. I'm trying to what I'm, I don't think I want to sort of micromanage you guys that much and go bit by bit. But you know, there are just a couple of things in the movie that still just there is a logic that is lacking, even though this edit really does sort of tell the story in a way that's easier to follow and easier to digest and is overall way more, um, it flows better. It's funny. This movie is a half hour longer. It's three hours, but it actually flies by and feels faster than the Batman, you know, than the, the theatrical cut, which is a half hour shorter. Um, and then, you know, Perry White has a line that's just indicative again of, of, how the movie wants us to feel about Superman, but it's an unearned feeling. You know, he has a line in there about, you know, it's where he, he tells the, uh, he tells Jenny to come up with the headline that says, you know, end of love affair with man in sky question mark. But the thing is we've never really properly gotten to see that love affair or to see why people would love him. Um, to me, that wasn't very much built up in Man of Steel. We just kind of go from his first day on the job and most of the city is leveled and thousands upon thousands of people are dead to here he is on his bicycle putting on his glasses and now in the city everyone's kind of moved on. And in this one, you know, for those opening few, the opening half hour or so of Batman v Superman, we still haven't seen anyone who seemingly seems to like the guy outside of Lois. So, you know, this whole thing of the end of love affair with man in sky, like, well, what love affair? Get us to love him before you then try to talk about how now we're not loving him anymore. Like, they they totally rushed to that aspect of this character's development. They're rushing straight to the falling out of the love affair without giving us a love affair. Um, Now, you know who I have a love affair with? Lex Luther. I love this Lex. And I know that that totally flies in the face of what most people say about this movie. A lot of people can't stand Jesse Eisenberg's Lex Luthor. I think he's great. And I think I liked him even better this time around because with the new, with the extra half hour of footage, we get to learn even more about him and his idiosyncrasies and why he feels the way he feels and what his motives are. You know, I think Lex Luthor is awesome. I actually wrote it a couple times. Towards the beginning, I just wrote, I love Lex. Then towards the end, I just wrote, Lex is awesome. I wrote that second one during the scene where it's Lois and Lex on the rooftop. Or was it? Yeah, the rooftop and then then Superman and Lex on the rooftop. Like, I just, I think I'm totally buying in to this Lex Luthor. Um, And that's just, you know, I, I might be very much in the minority there just as I was with Doomsday, just as I was with Jared Leto's Joker. I've always been sort of a bigger... Even with Ares and and Wonder Woman, I, in general, like DC's villains more than everyone else does. And hopefully, by the way, that comes true when I see Justice League on Thursday, because everyone is already crapping all over Steppenwolf, and if history has taught me anything, this means I'm going to like Steppenwolf. (laughs) So we'll see how that uh, plays out. I was intrigued by Batman v Superman's twist on the mythology that plays up the fact that Clark, Bruce, and Lex are all orphans. You know, Clark still technically has, you know, he has Martha, who's not his biological mother. But, you know, the the orphan angle is part of Superman's mythology. We know, obviously, Bruce Wayne. And Lex Luthor in this one 
you know, he has a, he has a line about being an orphan and he talks about, you know, the, the legacy of his father and, and trying to reconcile who he is with, with the darkness of his father's past and all this sort of stuff. I just found that interesting that the three power players in this movie, they're all orphans. And the movie has some interesting things to say about the ways in which people without those guiding lights, without their mother and father, the different paths they can take. Um, so I found that to be an interesting uh, sort of exploration. Just a bit of trivia, by the way. I found it interesting uh, that in that library sequence, Lex Luthor brings up the myth of Prometheus. Because in Superman Returns, Lex Luthor, played by Kevin Spacey, also talks about Prometheus and, and talks about bringing fire to the people and the whole thing. So I just found it like just this odd coincidence that in you know both of the recent reinterpretations, I mean, 2006 isn't even that recent anymore, but you know, both of the most recent Lex Luthor reinterpretations seem to have this uh, knack or this this affinity for bringing up the myth of Prometheus. So I found that interesting. I also thought it was kind of funny and cute and inspired that the moment where Bruce and Clark meet for the first time, the jazz singer in the background is singing Night and Day. Uh, that's just, you know, I, I, it's not the Ella Fitzgerald original, but I, I'll take it. You know, it, it's just a cool idea of Night and Day because, you know, we get it. It's night meeting day. It's Superman, it's Batman, it's the dark meeting the light. I, I appreciated that. And to sort of circle back also to Man of Steel, there's another Wilhelm scream in this movie. Uh, I, I, I'm blanking out on when it happened this time around, but there is another Wilhelm. Did I write it down? Did I write out the timing? For those of you who are totally lost, the, the Wilhelm scream is a very sort of famous sound effect that's been on in, in a bunch of movies. Just look it up. I'm not going to re-repeat it. But it happens again in Batman v Superman. So I, every time I hear the Wilhelm scream, I'm like, oh, that's, that's pretty cool. And it makes the movie instantly part of a, an interesting little legacy there. Um, now, in terms of the way Superman is, is depicted in this, you know, I still have a huge problem with all of the sort of slow-mo hovering and grimacing he does in a lot of this movie, even when he's supposedly there to help people. Now, listen, life is not about extremes. So whenever I point that out, someone else will come up and say, oh, what, he's supposed to just smile like an idiot all the time? Oh, why isn't he smiling? No, I'm not saying he should be smiling. Try to open your eyes a little bit and think about, oh, there's that life isn't just about extremes, is it? I'm not saying he needs to be smiling as he's doing every little save or whatnot, or just randomly smiling like a goof while he flies around. But why does he have to look pissed off? That's the only point I'm trying to make here. In every sequence when he's saving people, he looks fairly miserable to be there. You know, picture it now. Picture when he's when he's um, hovering there over the people who are reaching out to him, and they're on on the roof of a, of, of a town. Where, like the, they're in some sort of flood, and they've painted the Superman S on the roof of their house, and they're reaching out desperately for him. We need you, Superman, and he's just sort of floating there, cape flapping in the distance, just floating slowly coming towards her while she's like this, freaking out. I'm stoic Superman. And it's like, why? Why would, like, why? That's not how you win over the audience. 
That's not how you make them fall in love with this Superman. When you go to help someone, you know, like in other words, why can't he just seem like a friend? I'm happy. I'm here to help. I'm not here to smile and and give you a one-liner and say, by golly, gee, miss, you know, statistically speaking, flying is still the safest way to travel. I'm not saying do that. I'm saying just come with you, have direct Henry Cavill to approach these scenes like a friend who's there to help, who's there to be a reassuring presence. You're in danger. Don't worry. I'm here. I've got you. And Superman in this movie never feels that way. He always just sort of looks sort of pissed off or confused or constipated or something when he's holding the, 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 the missile over his head in that slow-mo shot. It's an epic, gorgeous-looking shot. But why does he have to look so pissed off about it? Like in, 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 Every step of the way, when he's saving lives, he looks angry. So much of he, like Superman's got resting bitchy face all throughout this movie. And I think that's a big part of the reason why people have not been able to relate or buy into this Superman as of yet. Um, Because again, it's not about him needing to have some sort of cheesy grin on his face. It's about just look like a friend who's here to help. And then it makes the moments when Clark is watching the TV and hearing what people are saying about him, it makes those moments land more. Because there he would then react emotionally, and that's when he can look. He that's when he can look angry and upset. He's like, "How are these people not understanding me? Why do they think I'm here to hurt them? Why are they speaking of me like I'm this evil, dark presence? Can't they tell I'm their friend?" That would have been much. That would have been a much more interesting a, a, a way to approach this. If when he's helping people, he comes off as your friend, but all these people who are clearly warping what he's there for and using him for their own political agendas and twisting his intentions, you know, if you have that sort of dynamic, that would have, that would have like made the whole thing just flow a lot better. It would have felt a lot better. But instead, he looks grimacy and pouty when he's saving people. He looks grimacy and pouty when people misunderstand it. He's grimacy and pouty when he talks to Lois. It's just like, you know, the way Henry Cavill was directed to play the role just seems all wrong to me. I wish, I wish, I wish he came off like a friend who was there to help. And it would make it that much more tragic that people don't understand his intentions. But it's kind of hard to not understand his intentions if every time he saves someone, he looks like he'd rather be any place but there. Um, I do love Clark calling his mom. That was a sweet little moment. I don't think that was in the theatrical cut when uh, he sees like some news report or whatever and he literally just calls her to say hi. Nothing comes of the conversation, but that's such a human, beautiful little moment. And the way Diane Lane acts it out, waking up and, and, and getting this random call from her boy and, and how funny, it, how random it is to her that he's calling just to say hi in the middle of the night. Like, I love that. That was humanistic. That made me feel for Clark more than anything else that happened. That little moment fleshed Clark out a little bit more for me. And I wish that there had been more of that, more of that just, you know, vulnerability. Um, I don't like the nightmare sequence. I just don't, it's, the, the, where it's put in seems totally sort of random and arbitrary, and there's no payoff to it, so now it's totally up to Justice League or perhaps Flashpoint to finally sort of make that nightmare sequence right, 
But as it stands, I didn't like it the first time. I don't like it now. I do love the cat and mouse between Diana and Bruce. The stuff where they're both sort of like these sneaky spy type characters trying to get the dirt on Lex Luthor and their chemistry together and how there's a little bit of that sexual tension in there and how Bruce you know, initially underestimates her but then finds out she's a very worthy adversary. Just that whole thing. I think that's really cool. Um, I do appreciate that in this version, Clark is in like an investigative reporter who's trying to find out more about the Batman and Gotham and all that sort of stuff. So I think the subplot, which gets a little more attention in the Ultimate Edition, I think that's a, a very good thing. There's another sort of thematic theme in the movie that I found interesting, which is they play up three different times the idea of men wielding too much power, a single man holding too much power. At some point, you know, I, it's either the senator or someone on the news has some sort of quote about Superman basically, you know, getting to decide who wins or dies, who, who, who lives or dies because he's some sort of vigilante. Because right now they're thinking that he went out to Africa and he saved Lois, but he killed the rest of the village. And he looks like, you know, they're making the case that one man shouldn't have the ability to decide who, who lives or dies. Then Clark throws that same sort of concept at Perry White. When Perry White is talking about what stories to publish, Clark basically puts upon him the responsibility that the paper has to try to emphasize certain stories and certain people who are in need and certain crises that are going on, because depending on where you shine your spotlight, people could live or die, or a problem may or may not be solved. So why should I write about the football game when there's a crime wave going on? So that's an, so, so first Superman gets it about who gets to live or die. Then Perry White gets it because he, he's focusing on the wrong things and, and a whole, all kinds of lives are now at stake because he refuses to sort of cover a key story. And then Bruce gets it. Batman gets the same sort of lecture thrown at him throughout the movie, which is he's made himself judge, jury, and executioner. By branding those, those criminals, when they go into the prison system, he's basically sentencing them to death. And again, now it's that question of, does Batman wield too much power? Is it fair that he can decide on his own, these people must die? So with Superman, he has too much power in deciding who gets to live. In Batman's side, he has too much power with regard with who gets to die. And Perry White has this responsibility of, you know, what people deserve the most attention right now and, and who, who, who needs the spotlight. So that was an interesting sort of theme within, within the, the script that I thought was interesting, this idea of, you know, men wielding way too much power and using that power perhaps the wrong way. Uh, I appreciated that. I thought that was a, a heady and interesting idea to work into the script. Now, let's talk a little bit about the fight itself, because I'd actually sort of forgotten some of what went into the build for that movie, uh, build for that fight, I should say. Um, and I, I was pleasantly surprised that it was better thought out than I remembered it being, because I remembered, you know, Batman had his motivations, you know, thinking that Superman was basically a no good 
entity here on Earth who could turn around and kill us all. And, you know, he witnessed firsthand how destructive Superman can be. And then when you combine that with the ways in which Lex Luthor sort of framed Superman in a very public way for certain atrocities, you can sort of understand why Bruce feels this way. It's misguided, but for a guy who is an orphan who watched his parents die in front of him, who clearly has his own sort of PTSD and issues, you can get behind Batman's motivations. Superman's always, to me, were somewhat confusing, you know, because we know that Superman, why would he want to kill Batman? He, you know, he, he's more so generally the type of character who'd want to bring him to justice. So the fight always felt somewhat forced, and I forgot that in the movie, that doesn't end up being why Superman comes to fight him. He comes to fight him because Lex Luthor basically gives him an ultimatum. He says, either you kill Batman or I kill your mother. I totally sort of forgot about that aspect of it for whatever reason. So watching it this time, it actually felt a little better, a little more fully uh, built, you know, it, it felt a little like, like a more full-fledged idea there, rather than just let's make them fight for the hell of it. And I also liked what Lex Luthor was trying to do. You know, he was trying to ruin him. He was trying to corrupt Superman because he knows that one, you know, if he does go through with this and he kills Batman, he will never be the same again. He'll never be viewed the same way. He will never feel the same way. He's trying to corrupt and ruin Superman from the inside out, break his heart, shatter his mind, make the people turn against him. So I'm totally like I buy into all that. And I, I really enjoyed realizing that that was part of the story, that it wasn't quite as half baked. But unfortunately, as we get to the fight itself, this is this is where things get very, very half-baked. Um, I hate the fight. I, you know, in, in my original review, which you can go back and watch, it's on this channel. In my original review, I refer to it as like, you know, it's like watching your mother fight your father and your father smashes your mom with a kitchen sink. Like it's, it's hard for me to watch it. But, um, but beyond that, the fight is sort of ridiculous, and it's indicative of very, very bad writing, okay? So let's think about that for a sec. We have Superman freaking out. He just found out that his mother's hostage. He just looked at these Polaroids of his mother with the word witch put on her forehead, and she's being gagged, and it's a very sort of dramatic visual. By the way, my heaters are making crazy noises, so if you hear all that, Noah, my house is not being attacked by Transformers. My heaters are bugging out. Anyway, so here you have, you know, he's freaking out. He just found out that Lex Luthor has kidnapped his mother and also that Lex Luthor found out his, found out his identity and that he has a very short amount of time to try and save his mother, figure out a way to create peace with Batman. It's, you know, the, the, the stakes are incredibly high. He's frantic, he's freaking out, he has no time. But you would never be able to get that sense from the way the scene plays out. The guy doesn't seem like he's in a rush at all. He arrives to confront Batman, and he's just doing all of his sort of slow sulking and not really saying the full story. 
Like, this entire fight would have been averted if Superman just arrived and said, listen, Bruce, I know we have this beef. We have to settle it later. An innocent woman is about to die. I need your help. That took, what, three seconds to say? Had he just landed and made that clear, now either the fight doesn't happen or it actually elevates the fight. Because then Batman could hear that and go, oh, now you care about innocent lives? Because, you know, Superman wouldn't say they're about to kill my mom because he's still trying to protect his identity. But if he comes down and says that you're going to kill an innocent woman, then Bruce could turn around and say, oh, now you care about innocent lives after the thousands who died in Metropolis when you were fighting Zod. And then all of a sudden, now the fight's getting really bitter. And then now all of a sudden, now there is more of a reason for them to fight. But Superman never says that. He just lands there and says, we don't have time for this. We, I need your help. And then they just kind of go into this protracted brawl, which feels completely arbitrary. It's that bad writing trope 101 of like when you're watching a TV show and you realize like, wow, this entire episode, you know, you could have totally just done away with this entire episode if one character just spoke, just spoke. If they just communicated what they knew up here, then the entire central conflict of this episode wouldn't even happen. And, you know, we, we, we've sort of gotten used to that in, like, those primetime soap operas and your Grey's Anatomy. Lord knows the Marvel TV shows on Netflix, they always drag things out. You know, th- it's bad writing 101 to have one character who definitely has something to say that would change the entire landscape decide not to say it. So Superman arrives and that entire fight could have been averted if he just made clear that there's no time for this. Innocent, an innocent person or innocent people are about to die. Let's settle this later. I need your help. Instead, he doesn't do that. And he seems to operate with absolute zero urgency in fighting Batman and getting this over with. Then there's the whole ludicrous aspect of There's no way Batman could have predicted where the fight was going to end up. They were in an entire sort of abandoned neighborhood. So what, did he hide a kryptonite spear in the basement of every single one of those buildings? How did he know that Superman would grab him and throw him through that building? And that they'd end up on that rooftop and go through those sequences of floors and end up at all those booby traps and all that stuff. How would he know that? I get it. Batman's a super genius and all this sort of stuff. But that's just that that stretches the level of incredulity. It's just it's unbelievable how sort of stupid and simplistic the staging of that fight is. It's ridiculous. There's no way there's no way Batman could have predicted that they'd end up right there where he has the kryptonite spear conveniently placed. They could have staged the whole fight some other sort of way where there's really only one place they could have gone, but he's in a whole little town surrounded by buildings and houses and structures. There's no way. There's just no way. The whole fight is so stupid. Between Superman not speaking his mind, between Batman apparently also having psychic powers that we never knew about, that entire fight is ridiculous. Um, And it's just more of that, like, Clark slow sulking brute, that more of that blunt force, dumbass Superman that Zack Snyder seems to be a big fan of. Um, It's just, you know, the the fight's ridiculous. The the whole thing feels forced, even when when Bruce is standing on his neck and he's about to stab him. Henry Cavill, Martha, 
they're going to kill Martha. And it's like, it, it, it just feels so phony. The whole thing just feels so phony. So let's talk about the Martha moment, okay? I like the Martha moment. I do. I, I understand the importance of it. It's become this infamous, almost sort of nuke the fridge, jump the shark sort of pop culture vernacular as this moment that people talk about as this like magical resolution to a power to, to, to a problem that's been brewing for hours in, this, in the, the course of a movie. Um, I don't have an issue with it itself. But again, as with a lot of stuff when it comes to Snyder and these DC movies, it's about the execution. It's about how we get to it. I like the idea of it, but I'm certain that a better writer or a better director would have found a much better way to get us there instead of filling us with just nonsense. Instead of showing just all this violence and all this over-the-top iconography of Batman beating the hell out of Superman and Superman spearing Batman. It's all just like, this is for middle schoolers. I don't know what this is. This doesn't, this doesn't work for me at all. Um, thankfully this time around, I knew that. And like I said, this, I, I accepted that, but, um, it's just, it's just in, insanely stupid. Um, I can get behind the concept, can't get behind the execution. Um, now this arrives at like Probably the harshest thing I will ever say about Zack Snyder. Um, because I tread carefully. For a lot of people, you know, they hold him in very high regard. And there have been people who've been needlessly sort of cruel and judgmental and almost seemingly vindictive in a personal level towards him. And I'm not that person. I don't have a grudge against him. He seems like a really good dude. And he actually is incredibly talented. I, I've never once questioned or doubted that when it comes to adapting comic book visuals into live action, when it comes to coming up with interesting ideas to explore in a story, he's actually really, really good. But my biggest critique, and this fight is emblematic of it, is that he is an inept storyteller. He's just an inept storyteller. He... He knows the bullet points of the story that he wants, right? He knows the different types of ideas he wants to arrive at, right? But he has no idea how to get there. He takes these weird roundabout sort of detours to finally arrive at his point. And a lot of times the way he got there undoes the power of the point, you know, Lex Luthor ironically says, you know, he, he when he's when he's talking about uh, when he's talking to, to Lois on the on the or is it Superman? I keep confusing those two scenes. But when he's on the roof, he says like the shortest distance between two places is a straight line. Well, Zack Snyder could learn a thing or two from that line. He takes these paths to his ultimate goal that sabotage the goal, and for me, that's what that fight was. I know all the things he was trying to convey there. But the way he got there was awful and dumb and ill-conceived. And I felt the same way about Man of Steel. And I feel the same way about a lot of his general high-minded ideas with Batman v Superman and how he wanted that to build towards Justice League. You know, he's just an inept storyteller. He has great ideas. He has no idea how to execute them and how to get to them in a way so that when you finally arrive at them, there's a big payoff. He just... 
he just he he has to learn how to do that. He's not a storyteller. He's to me for for right now he's still sort of honing his craft as far as I'm concerned. For the time being, he should really just be like a cinematographer or a director of photography. That's all he should be doing. He should be working with an actual director who knows how to develop a story and how to properly convey the stakes and the flow and the peaks and the valleys of each character arc. And he should work alongside one of them and just give them amazing visuals on the screen. Take their ideas and help sort of make them look beautiful because that's what he's good at. But in terms of actually executing a story, the guy pretty much has very little clue how to do that so far. Um, so now let's move past the fight. Uh, the, yeah, the stuff at the Batman, yeah, at the warehouse, I still really love. I mean, it's so fun. It's like watching the Arkham games come to life. Um, you know, I, I still get a kick out of that. They're just sort of like... This time around, it was fairly noticeable here and in the nightmare sequence how sort of um, hiding in plain sight Ben Affleck's stunt double was. Uh, you know, obviously it's a stunt double, and that's fine. That's Hollywood magic. I have no issue with that. I don't even have an issue in general. But this time around, like, you could just tell it's not him. And they, and they weren't even trying to be coy about it. Through a lot of it, the camera, you see his face. And, like, that's not Ben Affleck's face. You know, it's Ben Affleck's face at the beginning of the scene and at the end. But all the cool sort of martial arts stuff, it's a totally different type of mouth. It's, it's not him. So that's just more trivia. That's not complaining. I'm not critiquing. I still love the Batman scene, but I did get a kick out of that and the nightmare sequence seeing how like, oh, you're not even trying to hide the fact that that's not Ben Affleck. Okay. Um, and something that, you know, I thought maybe I was being too hard on this moment originally, but so I was, so this time around, I tried to be more open-minded, but it turns out I was right all along. You know, the sequence where Superman goes to confront Lex Luthor and he meets Doomsday and Doomsday, you know, breaks out of that thing and is sort of born before him. There's a moment in that scene that should have been very, very important to the narrative and a, and a pivotal sort of turning point that is actually given zero importance and again, I thought maybe I was just looking at it with tunnel vision. Maybe I missed something. So this time when the sequence came up, I paid very close attention. And I watched very intently. What I'm referring to is when Doomsday roars, pulls back his fist, and goes to punch Lex, and Superman blocks the punch. That is a big moment. Here we are. Lex Luthor has spent all this time hating Superman and, and, and describing him as this angry god who's there to ruin everyone's lives because, you know, he has all the, you know, Lex Luthor has a great motivation for why he hates Superman. And I'm not saying that Superman saving his life would have undone how unhinged Luthor was, but the fact that Superman, even though Lex just tried to have his mother killed, and even though he just created this abomination doomsday figure who's here to who potentially kill thousands of innocent lives, Superman still has such a big heart that he saves Luthor from doomsday. That is a powerful moment. And it's treated like nothing. It's just part of the fight. 
It's just, this is how the fight starts, you know? He goes to the swing, Superman blocks it, they fight their way out of the thing, and now we're just kind of off and running. There's not a moment where, like, we go back to Lex's face and maybe something dawns on him, like, oh, shit, this thing I just created just tried to kill me. Or, oh, man, maybe there's a chance I was wrong about Superman. Like, there's nothing. There is zero acknowledgement of the fact that Lex created Doomsday, but Doomsday is such an unstable thing that it tried to kill Lex. And that Superman, despite everything he knows about what Luthor was just trying to do and the hell that he has just brought to Earth, still found it in his big, dumb Kryptonian heart to save his life. That's a big, big moment. And it gets nothing. It's nothing. There's not even a close-up. There's not even any of Snyder's signature slow-mo. For all the different places where he uses slow-mo, you'd think maybe as the fist is hurling towards Lex, you'd go into slow-mo as Superman goes and blocks it just to give that moment some real power. Let the audience see, whoa, Superman is an amazing hero. I can't believe that he would do this for Luthor. Nope, no slow-mo. Just punch, block, fight, 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 and we move on from there. And to me, that is just, that, that, that's part of where Snyder is just lacking as a storyteller. He turns up the knob really high on things that either don't really matter to your general audience or that don't really help us get invested. And then he turns the volume all the way down on those little character moments that would make such a difference. There's so many little areas where had he just emphasized certain little points a little more and de-emphasized some of the more testosterone-driven, dumb middle school stuff, you would have a pretty damn special movie here. But the way he balances those knobs are all wrong. And that moment just, it, to this day, to this day, it still rocks my world. That Superman would do that and that for the sake of the storytelling public, you know, the, the, the movie, it would get zero importance. So that was sort of like one of my last big notes on it because that's, you know, that's towards that happens in the third act and it happens. And, and that was just for me, it, it was very hard for me to come back from that. When I realized how little that mattered to Snyder, I'm like, well, you know what? If that doesn't matter to you, then we are, we are not on the same wavelength for what makes for a great Superman story. Um, you know, the, the, the one area where I felt like Snyder tried to make amends with fans like me, the one area that I truly do appreciate where it sounds like he was open to, to our critiques of Man of Steel was when Superman very dramatically takes Doomsday and takes him into outer space. I thought that was cool. I appreciated Superman very deliberately and carefully trying to get Doomsday away from Metropolis, away from where he could harm innocent people. That was very Superman. And that was very much, you could tell, a way for Snyder to acknowledge, hey guys... I heard you. You hated all of the crazy destruction of Man of Steel. Look, Superman's trying to stop it this time. So thank you for that. And also, the, and, and, and they kind of then go a little heavy-handed with it, though, 
Because then when he lands on Stryker's Island, the military guy in the background instantly goes, it's uninhabited. You hear that, audience? It's uninhabited. No one lives there, okay? Don't be mad at us. And then the same thing happens when Bruce wants to lure him away to Gotham. He makes sure to say very clear. He, may, he practically says, time out, like Zack Snyder, looks at the camera and says, that part of town is empty. So Snyder, you know, I, I, I just want to say I appreciate him trying to acknowledge the fact that the collateral damage this time around will be rather insignificant so that we can fully just enjoy the battle. Um, I just think he played that hand a little hard, and it was almost kind of funny. Uh, now, while we're speaking about that part of the fight now, that this is where Wonder Woman enters the fray. So let's talk Wonder Woman a little bit, shall we? Um, the retcon is pretty damn funny. The retcon of how she is in this movie to what she would end up being in the solo movie and end up being now the foreseeable future. What Gal Gadot said uh, last week or two weeks ago about basically, you know, saying that that was a terrible decision. You know, in, in not so many words, she said that it was essentially a mistake to depict Diana Prince as someone who's been in hiding for 100 years in terms of being Wonder Woman. That she d didn't want to become, you know, mixed up in the affairs of man after a century of horrors. Um, but let, let's examine now what led to that retcon. Because here's the Diana Prince that we saw in this movie, okay? In this movie, just in terms of the third act, right? It's just such so emblematic of how much she's changed and how the writers and DC Entertainment are trying to reposition her. She enters the hotel... Sees the news on the TV about some crazy stuff's going on and whatever, right? Doesn't spring to action. She goes upstairs. She changes her clothes, gets into a robe, starts packing a bag. All throughout the course of the third act, we know she's keeping tabs on everything. Still, Doomsday shows up. She goes to the airport, okay? They keep fighting. She's on the airplane, then, finally, as Superman comes and takes Doomsday away and whatever, that's when she decides, you know what, okay, I'm going to get off the plane. I should go do something. Think about that, and then think about how Wonder Woman was ultimately depicted in her solo movie and how that movie ends with her essentially saying that, you know, I'll always be here to defend humanity and how Gal Gadot has now acknowledged that that is the way Wonder Woman should be. That the, that the Diana Prince we saw in Batman v Superman, that was a mistake to depict her that way because she would never turn her back on humanity. So that, that's just, it's interesting to sort of look at that again now with the benefit of a year and a half and to see how things have evolved. They essentially have now acknowledged that that was not the right way to depict her. That said, she's awesome. You know, in, in, in that scene there in Gotham when she's there and we hear the music for the first time and she blocks the things and you know, she's just she's a force to be reckoned with. I love Gal Gadot at Wonder Woman as Wonder Woman. I loved her when they announced her. I, I had no opinion when they announced her because to me she was just the, the girl from Fast and Furious. But I didn't have that negative response. A lot of people were like, oh, she's so scrawny, this is whatever. I never had that negative response. So I, was, I went from being open to her to basically loving her every step of the way. Every time she's on screen as Wonder Woman, I think Gal Gadot is phenomenal. Uh, I was intrigued by the fact that 
she was going to be this figure who disappeared for a hundred years. And I thought maybe her solo film would give us a real explanation for why she would be so jaded and so put off and to disagree or, or, or to, to not instantly jump to help Batman and Superman. I thought maybe the, the, the solo movie would address that, but instead they just retconned it and they said that's, that was wrong. So it's been interesting to sort of, you know, look at that again. And there's also the, that little retcon of, um, of Barry Allen, of The Flash, right? And this movie, both times we see him, he's got that little dirty Sanchez, wispy facial hair. He's kind of grungy looking. He's got the long hair and the security cam thing. And now he's like clean cut, short hair, just more of like a nerdy guy who lives in his mom's basement type of character. Um, so it's been interesting to see the different sort of retcons and adjustments that have happened since Batman v Superman and seeing the movie now with Justice League about to be here in two days. It's just sort of interesting having all of this extra perspective as we look back on these things. And just to sort of wrap things up on a positive note, I just can't say enough how much I love the third act in general. Getting to see Batman and Superman and Wonder Woman working together, each of them doing what they do best. You know, you have Batman knowing he can't go toe-to-toe with Doomsday, so what does he do? He's trying to distract him, and he's trying to, you know, lure him around to different spots while Superman is, you know, ramming him through things and using his abilities to hurt him, while Wonder Woman's running around at his feet with the swords and stabbing his legs and and fighting him head-on, hand-to-hand combat, because she's a warrior. Then at the very end, you have her holding Doomsday with the lasso, Batman weakening him with the the kryptonite gas, and then Superman stabbing. The, the, The three of them just working together, like that whole thing... Like, that's what we're here for, people. That's why you go see a movie like this, because you want to go see your favorite heroes doing epically cool stuff. So, um, God, I had such a good time watching the end of that. I I, I still, I said it earlier, but I'll say it one more time. I think Doomsday is a great, great, freakishly awesome villain in terms of just like being the perfect thing to have to bring these three heroes together and 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 test them to their you know push them to the brink um so that third act still saves the movie for me quite a bit and now it is time for my official score so i gave batman v superman dawn of justice a c plus when i saw it in theaters last year now that it's been a year and a half and i just finally sat down to watch The Ultimate Edition, my new revised score is B. Yes, it's a B. It's actually, it's gone up two grades just based on the better edit and overall my general ability to divorce myself from it a bit and just enjoy it more as an outsider rather than trying to enjoy it as a lifelong Superman fan. Just enjoying it for what it is. I had a much better time. So I give the movie a B. And it's interesting what's happened these last couple days, right? Because Man of Steel went like sort of down for me. I used to like Man of Steel more. And I ended up giving that a B minus. And now Batman v Superman has jumped up above it. So now in my rankings, it's Wonder Woman, Batman v Superman, Man of Steel, Suicide Squad. 
That's my sort of ranking of the DCEU films thus far. And tomorrow, I get to find out where Justice League falls on the list. I'm optimistic. I'm hoping it's excellent. If you want to try to see the movie with me and some of my other New York area listeners and watchers and supporters, uh, we're going to be attending the 9 p.m. Thursday preview performance of Justice League at the UA Midway Stadium 9 in Forest Hills. We will be going to the Forest Hills Station House at 7 o'clock prior to the movie, for those of you who want to come, eating and drinking before the movie, and then after the movie, going to go back there for a bit of a post-mortem sort of chat, and I will deliver my initial sort of hot take on Justice League to whoever's there, and in general, just hang out and you know, uh, make a communal experience out of all this. So if you're interested in that, go to lfanboy.com for details. If you are interested in supporting what I'm doing here, I've been creating a ton of Justice League content, and in general, I've got the podcast every week, and I'm trying to up the ante here on the YouTube channel. Uh, visit patreon.com slash lfanboy. I do this for you guys. And uh, I love doing it, but this takes a lot of time and a lot of energy. And uh, I hope you are enjoying Justice League Week here at El Fanboy thus far. And uh, stay tuned. Until next time, adios. <laughs>